This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, the all-in-one language app. With Rosetta Stone, you'll have everything you need to learn a language and use it in the real world. They offer immersive lessons, writing prompts, and engaging activities to prepare you for real-life conversations. You can pick and choose the lessons that work best for you and create a personalized experience that's both fun and engaging. Get ready for life's adventures with 50% off for I Know Dino listeners at rosettastone.com dino. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. Before we dive in, happy Halloween. Yeah. Rare that our podcast comes out on such a bone-themed holiday. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we're going with? (laughs) I guess. I mean, the skeletons, right? Like Home Depot sells those different dinosaur things. I think they do. They did last year. I'm not sure if they do this year. But yeah, let us know if you have some good dinosaur costumes because we always like seeing those. Well, there's the different inflatable costumes now. and got T-Rex, Triceratops, Blue. Oh, yeah. I don't think I've seen a Triceratops one yet. That'd be cool. Looks difficult to get around in. <laughs> yeah. This week, we have an interview with Ali Nabavizada, Dinosaur of the Day, Yamaceratops, and a bunch of dinosaur news. A lot of it is from SVP because yes. we recently came back. So for this week and the following two weeks, we'll also be talking about all the things that we learned at SVP. So that's going to be a lot of dense information, but it's really fun because it's you can get kind of a high level overview of someone's basically like the whole focus of their research from a 15 minute talk. Mm-hmm. And then we distill it down even a little bit more into the things that are most interesting, especially about dinosaurs. So hopefully you enjoy that. And thank you to all of our patrons. For anyone who joined us before we went on our epic SVP journey, (laughs) you'll be getting your rewards soon, either online or through the mail. Or both. Or both. (laughs) So yeah, check your inboxes, both physical and digital, (laughs) for those things over the next couple days and weeks, depending on how far away you are. And one last comment about our Patreon before we get into our dinosaur news. We just enabled the RSS feed on Patreon, which is this awesome thing where you'll automatically get all of your premium content, whatever you have access to, via a custom RSS feed link on the Patreon page. So those of you that get the ad-free show no longer need to go to Dropbox. It'll automatically download using this RSS feed link that you can get from patreon.com once you log in. And if you're a patron at any level, you have access to the premium content that we release regularly, including longer interviews or segments that don't make it onto the show, or occasionally, like we did some specials for Jurassic World, where we talked about some of the dinosaurs of the day and kind of lumped them together so you could catch up on your Jurassic Park dinosaurs and things like that. So if you want to get the premium content much easier than you could before, you can go to patreon.com, log in, and then put the RSS link into whatever podcast player you use, and it'll automatically download the premium content as soon as it's released. So jumping into our SVP news, that's what we're going to start with, We're going to go through all the presentations we heard on the first day of SVP (laughs) because there were a lot. There was a whole session just on dinosaurs. So we watched all of those talks and a lot of them were fabulous. So first of all, there was one that was all about Coelophysis, which is a good talk to have in New Mexico. Yeah, it's the state fossil. Yes. And they were found not too far from Albuquerque, just a couple hundred miles away. And Nesbitt said in their talk that... Basically, we know Coelophysis from at least 150 individuals, and most of them are from the same bone bed. So that's really handy because you know that they were around at the same time and place. So you can do a lot more comparisons about their exact anatomy and things, whereas if they were a couple million years apart, you might have to worry about some variation in the environment or even, you know, maybe it wasn't the exact same species anymore. But when they're from the same bone bed, it's really great. 
So what they pointed out was that it's hard to identify which groups of dinosaurs are the closest relatives because even when you're looking at these 150 individuals that are the same species from the exact same time and place, there are a lot of differences in their femora, which is the plural of femur. So they did length estimates of their femora to see about what the dinosaur age and size was. And then they sort of tried to use that to estimate the ontogeny or like how grown up the dinosaurs were. And what they found was that these dinosaurs were sort of all over the place. There were a lot of differences that changes as the dinosaurs aged. So basically what they found was that these Coelophysis, which were pretty early dinosaurs, and their close relatives, not dinosaurs, but they kind of look like dinosaurs if you look at a picture of them, they had kind of similar femurs, and they grew in similar ways as they aged. And included in that sort of changes as they aged were some pretty significant changes in their femur. So as they aged, they would see things like this part of the bone called the trochanter might be missing when it was younger, but then as they grew up, it might show up and like kind of change shape. And that would make the animal, based on a lot of these phylogenetic trees, look like one of these older, early dinosaurs. But if you just found an older individual of Coelophysis, it would look like it's a, a more evolved and like derived dinosaur. So basically they're saying you have to be really careful when you're looking at femurs and especially when you're looking at these triassic dinosaurs because in later dinosaurs you don't see as many of these changes as the dinosaurs age we don't think but in the early dinosaurs there could be some pretty big changes so it's another one of these where you might end we might end up lumping some of the dinosaurs later because we realize oh wait that femur is actually just a juvenile version of this other femur and just because it has this extra bump on it doesn't mean that it's a new species seems to be a lot of that in paleontology there is. There was a lot of lumping and splitting happening at this conference. I would say a little more lumping. This year. Yeah, a little more lumping this year. <laughs> but of course, there were also a lot of new dinosaurs, but those were mostly came from like new fossils. Up next, I want to talk about a presentation by Marjanovic on behalf of Mortimer, because not all the presentations were presented by the lead author, which was the case this time. Basically, they talked about the whole Ornithocelida or Ornithoscelida debate, and it was kind of an off-putting talk because it was really critical and it was a lot of like blog post kind of things. But anyway, they had some good data in there where they talked about how a lot of the things might have been miscoded in the original analysis, like things like denticle size on the teeth were kind of far off and that may have skewed some of the groups and when they redid the analysis they found that it looked like ornithocelida didn't have a lot of support and they got the traditional sort of trees of ornithischia and saurischia all the sort of normal places where dinosaurs are so it was sort of a cautionary tale the way that the presentation was set up about like being careful with your data but there were also a whole ton of memes that were really insulting, so I didn't really like to talk that much. So I'm not sure. There, was, I think that was the only Ornithocelida talk that we saw specifically. Which is a little surprising. Yeah, I'd say overall, since there was less talk about Ornithocelida, it seems like it doesn't have a ton of support right now. The next talk that we saw was by Chappelle, and what she talked about was the sort of transition from dinosaurs walking bipedally to quadrupedally, and she says that that happened at least four times. There were three Ornithischians that seemed to have done it, and then it happens at least once or twice within sauropodomorphs. So quite a bit of changes happening. Yeah, and this happens a lot with dinosaurs. Oftentimes things evolve multiple times. Yeah, and we tend to see it more as we find more fossils, because in the beginning we'll say like, oh, it looks like there was this early dinosaur and it was bipedal and then later we have this quadrupedal one. So somewhere along the line they switched to being quadrupedal, which is basically what we think overall in something like sauropods, for example. But then as we find more fossils, we go like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> There's a lot of these other ones that are kind of in between and at ages that don't make a lot of sense for that sort of phylogeny. So now we think that it has to have happened multiple times. And so that's where we are now with a big messy tree and all sorts of crazy stuff happening over the years. But the thing that triggered this sort of 
analysis was they found a baby massospondylus, and that gave them the opportunity to check whether or not massospondylus was always bipedal, quadrupedal, or if it changed throughout its life, as has been proposed in the past. And so what they did was they looked at the robustness of the forelimb, and specifically they looked at the humerus, because that's the upper arm bone, and in your arm you have two bones in the lower arm, so that makes it a little more tricky to do a direct comparison. Whereas the upper arm, all the weight in your arm has to go through that one bone. So if it's really big, then it might be really big to support weight. It's a kind of a logical conclusion. So that's what they were operating based on. And then they didn't really look at the legs because the legs are supporting weight, whether or not you're bipedal or quadrupedal. So it's not as good of an indicator. I guess maybe you could do some kind of ratio between the two. But then you'd have to worry about the ratio of the weight of the animal, how much is on the hips versus the the front so whatever you just look at the how big the arm is kidding <laughs> and what they found was that massospondylus's arm was pretty small the whole time it was alive so it was probably a biped its entire life they also tried to apply the same sort of framework to some other dinosaurs and they found that musaurus seems to have shifted in posture from quadrupedal to bipedal as it aged, which at first seems very strange because not a lot of animals do this quadrupedal to bipedal move, but humans do. <laughs> so she was saying like, we shouldn't be too surprised because we've all done this shift in our life stages. So it's not too crazy. And since it's what the fossil supports, you know, we should probably stick to it. The next talk by Cuff sort of elaborated on this talk by looking more at Musaurus, not Massospondylus. It's kind of confusing. <laughs> <laughs> but Musaurus is the earliest Jurassic sauropodomorph. They pointed out that usually one of the more traditional ways to see if something is a biped or a quadruped is to compare the length of the fore and hind limbs. So you can think about yourself if you try to walk like a dinosaur, a quadrupedal dinosaur, and put your hands on the ground. It's a little bit awkward because our arms are shorter than our legs. I think that's a yoga position. It can be because <laughs> it puts you in sort of an awkward position. <laughs> but it's not really the best way to tell because different dinosaurs have different sorts of postures. So they used two different methods to estimate where the center of mass was of the animal to try to see how close it is to the hips instead of just looking you know, at the proportions of the limbs. So the first one they, that they used was called convex hulls, and we've talked about that before. They say it's pretty inaccurate, but it is good for estimating mass. And the way it works is you basically look at the skeleton of the animal, and then you put the minimum amount of meat around it that would just barely cover the bones. And that's called the minimum convex hull. It's like the smallest amount that you can possibly put on it. And then what they do is they just kind of apply a ratio. So we look at all sorts of animals and we say like, oh, well, it's usually like 25% more meat than you would technically need to just cover the bone because there's muscles and stuff. And it works out to being about 25% bigger than the skeleton. And then they apply that. Then you say it weighs about the same as water or maybe a little bit less. Sometimes you put in some air sacs or something to adjust the convex hull. And then you get your center of mass from it. And it's obviously a very crude way of doing it because you're not looking at the actual musculature and trying to get really realistic proportions of these different limbs and body parts. But it does give you a pretty good estimate. Then spline-based is much more accurate. That's the one where you actually try to consider like, well, we think its neck was about this big and we think its tail would have looked like this based on some of the more complicated parts of the anatomy. But... In their analysis, they got pretty much the exact same results from both of these. So one of the offshoots of this is you might as well just use this more inaccurate one <laughs> because it works just as well if all you're trying to do is figure out the center of mass. And what they found was that the center of mass of Musaurus shifted as it aged. So when it was really young, it was about halfway through the thorax. So in other words, between the legs and the arms. But then as it aged, the center of mass shifted back towards the femur. So the little ones with their center of mass farther forward couldn't get their feet underneath their center of mass. Sort of like a teeter-totter where 
there's a person sitting on one side of it. <laughs> it's just, it's always falling that way. So you have to support that side too. You can't just have this one pivot right in the middle. And as it aged though, the tail got a lot heavier. So it's sort of like more weight is added to the other end of the teeter-totter and it sort of balances out. And now all of a sudden you can just put all your weight through the legs in just that one point in the middle of the teeter-totter and you can stay up because that tail is getting a lot bigger and the tail grows faster than and more <laughs> than the rest of the body does as it ages. So that's what kind of pulls that center of mass back towards its hips. So long story short, they think that Musaurus also shifted from being quadrupedal to bipedal as it grew up. So he had two papers in a row and it was kind of funny because Cuff went up and he was like, well, you kind of already know the conclusion based on the talk that was just up here because <laughs> <laughs> they had the same conclusion, but they used different methods, which is really nice too, because, you know, when we're dealing with paleontology, there are always a lot of assumptions in these methods. So it's nice when there are multiple ways to look at it that end up with the same result. The next talk was by Lovelace, and they used a program called Niche Mapper, which is usually used to model the clades of living animals, but applied it to dinosaurs. So it's a really cool piece of software. Basically, you plug in this microclimate data into a model. So you have stuff like the temperature of the environment and the sort of model of an organism, which includes their shape, how much insulation they have, their behavior, their diet, how much oxygen they used. It's a lot of information. <laughs> yeah. And then you can kind of figure out where they would want to be if they have a whole bunch of insulation and it's really cold outside. Maybe they want to be outside because otherwise they would overheat if they were in some other place. Or on the other hand, maybe they're not really well suited to the environment and they need to be underground in order to survive. So it's sort of a handy tool. Unfortunately, you have to make a lot of assumptions because like you say, that's a lot of information like how much oxygen they consumed. We really have no idea for dinosaurs. Just about to say, yeah. So we, we have to make some pretty big assumptions. The assumptions that they ended up with was that they would try to keep their body around 38 degrees Celsius, which is similar to our body temperature. And we've there have been a few analyses that sort of come up with this number. It's always a little bit shaky, but it's, I guess, our best guess at the time. And what they found is that feathers on these dinosaurs helped a ton when it was really windy or when it was hot or cold. And we've talked before about how feathers are really fancy compared to something like fur because they can both keep you warm when it's cold out, but also keep you cool when it's warm out, <laughs> which we've talked about before. Basically, feathers are magical and way better than fur, and you can fluff them in fancy ways to cool yourself off or keep yourself extra warm. So when they combined these different features about feathers and unfeathered, since we don't really know about a lot of dinosaurs and whether or not they had feathers. They looked mostly at Plateosaurus and Coelophysis with that goal temperature. And then they looked at different combinations. So it's like, okay, well, say they didn't have feathers and they had a high metabolism. What would they have to do or what kind of place would they want to live? And what they found was that an uninsulated, meaning non-feathered Coelophysis would have a high metabolic rate and probably be up in the daytime. Whereas if it was just slightly insulated, so it had like dino fuzz, <laughs> sort of looking like a mammal, I guess, but you know, not like real feathers, just that little proto feathers, it still would have been okay in hot days. But if it was fully insulated, then it's more likely that it would have been in a cold microclimate and had a high metabolic rate, or otherwise, I guess it would have needed a lower metabolic rate, but that doesn't agree with their temperature goal. And Plateosaurus was actually pretty similar in most of these cases. So it's kind of surprising since there's such large size differences between the two animals. Yeah. It'd be interesting once you learn more about other types of dinosaurs, if you could plug those in as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the power of this niche mapper software. You can kind of put in everything you know about a dinosaur and then it'll give you sort of an, a range of things that might work. So like with this one, we know that it didn't have we can sort of cross out, well, it probably didn't have a low metabolic rate if it was living in this place and it had feathers because it wouldn't have been warm enough or would have been too hot or whatever. So it's pretty handy. It seems like a cool piece of software. But I wonder if maybe the reason most paleontologists don't use it is because there are just so many unknowns right. that it's sort of a big question mark. The next one that we saw 
was Ali Nabavizada, and that's what our interview is about.、Mm-hmm. So I'm just gonna very briefly say <laughs> that he looked at sort of the musculature of these different dinosaurs' faces and basically how they chewed. That's the main goal. It's like how did dinosaurs eat, and then it has the offshoot effect of sort of telling you a little bit about if they had cheeks or what their what the muscles would be like. Yeah, exactly, and that sort of tells you about sort of what their face might have looked like a little bit. And he also talked about this a little bit last year. So we talked about this a year ago when we did our SVP summary. <laughs> yeah, but the paper was just recently published. Yes, and he expanded on it and did some. Different stuff this year. The next presentation was by Wazik, and they talked about sort of how we can tell how old a dinosaur is, and also including modern birds, based on their bones, which is something we always want to know. So what they did was they they dissected a bunch of emus and ostriches as well as fossils to look at the sort of structure of the bone as it changed over time. And trying to look for signals where we might be able to see, like, oh, this one's an adult, or this one's young, or this one's old, or whatever. What they found was that young dinosaurs have woven parallel fiber, which is sort of disorganized, and then it turns into parallel fibered bone as ratites age. So that's those emus and ostriches, and that also the medullary space shrank, which is similar in dinosaurs. And then they named something that they call the embryonic perinatal interface, or EPI, EPI, to sort of signify that changing phase. And they're hoping that now we can use this to sort of more accurately age different dinosaurs instead of just looking at the lines of arrested growth. Yeah, those can be problematic because a lot of times, as the dinosaur ages, the sort of space in the middle of the bone. Takes over some of the early ages, and then you end up with kind of unrealistic ages. So we can model growth rates using this sort of epi technique. Then it might work better. The next talk by Schmidt was all about sauropodomorphs. Ooh, there were a lot of sauropodomorph talks. <laughs> there were,、uh, specifically, they were looking at sort of changes in the inner ear. They were looking mostly at the semicircular canal, which is something that they use more for balance than hearing acuity. But it sort of relates to the overall size of the inner ear. And what they did was they were sort of trying to see how different dinosaurs have different sorts of inner ears, which apparently hadn't really been compared much in the past. And they found that diplodocoids have relatively small inner ears. Relative to their skull length, and they use skull length because it's sort of a proxy for the skull mass. And you expect as a head gets bigger that the ear might proportionally get bigger, but in some cases that doesn't happen. And like in the case of diplodocoids, their skull is kind of big, I guess, for a sauropod, but a pretty small inner ear. And then Giraffatitan, on the other hand, has they said the largest known inner ear of like anything, and then it also has a really big Ratio between the two, so it's just like this massive inner ear thing. Not really sure why <laughs> needed such a huge one. They didn't really go into the uses of the inner ear, but it's definitely interesting to see that Giraffatitan had this crazy huge inner ear. And maybe you know, if you see these differences in inner ears, once we start to figure out what they use them for exactly, you might be able to link different dinosaurs together by behavior or see like how they're changing over time, like. When I hear giraffatite, and the first thing I think of is its really upright posture,、mm-hmm. and so maybe it needed a larger inner ear for balance because its <laughs> head is so high up. I don't know. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> Or as it, you know, moves its head around. I don't know. It's very interesting though that it's so different because a lot of these dinosaurs, once you start to look at a ton of them, they start to look similar. But then once you get inside their head using these CT scans and you see what their inner ear looks like, you're like, that looks totally different. Like, why is this? What is going on? Why is this dinosaur so much different than the other ones? But hopefully there'll be some follow-up papers where they talk about why some dinosaurs needed such a big inner ear and other dinosaurs didn't. The next talk was by Langle, and they were looking at something very different. <laughs> It was one of these fun studies where. They tried to sort of figure out the way dinosaurs moved by looking at modern animals and sort of tugging them around. So they took an alligator and a turkey, and they moved their arms around. 
basically, just to see what kind of range of motion that they had. And they did it in a lot of different ways. So one of the ways was in a CT scan so they could see the bones inside the body moving while it bent its arm. And that's really useful because basically alligators have a ton of cartilage in their elbow, which leaves a pretty big gap between their upper and lower arm and adds a lot of complexity to the way that the arm moves. Whereas if you just looked at the bones, you might assume that it could move in a lot of other ways that it couldn't because there's all this cartilage it has to deal with too. So in the same way, they can kind of apply the same sort of-ish <laughs> limitations to a dinosaur arm because you could say like, okay, well, we'll assume that there's that similar amount of cartilage that we see in alligators and turkeys in the elbow joint and it's going to cause the arm to be limited in these ways. So basically what they found was that even though the turkey had a little bit less cartilage in it, it still had a pretty significant gap between the forearm and the upper arm, and there were very similar movements between the two. So both the alligator and the turkey moved their arms in relatively similar ways, and the turkey did have a much larger range of motion, but when the arm moved through the range of motion that the alligator was moving through, the sort of radius and ulna and the lower arm are rotating in a pretty similar way, and they also, interestingly, sort of like do this little like dip to the side. It's not just like a straight rotation. The arm actually kind of, it's it's almost like a little jiggle <laughs> that the <laughs> arm does as it moves in like the exact same way between the two animals. So it's like they have a very similar musculature in their arms and those two bracket dinosaurs. So we know the, the common ancestor between alligators and turkeys predates dinosaurs splitting off as well. So if their arms are moving in a very similar way, then the best we can do is assume that dinosaurs also had the same kind of muscles and the same sort of movement. Mm -hmm. And one thing that it might have allowed them to do is to supinate their hands. So we've talked before about how dinosaurs probably couldn't pronate. And pronate is if you're going to like high five somebody and you point your hand away from your chest. Dinosaurs probably couldn't do that. But supinating is the opposite where you point your hand towards your chest. And it looks like maybe they could have done that. So that would have been nice. They could have drawn their hands close to their body. It's nice to do when you have wings. So you can kind of collapse your wings against your body. Or one speculation is you might be able to do it to sort of pull food up to your mouth. Because if you point your head at the ground, you know, if your arm is like 90 degrees <laughs> from the ground, it's kind of hard to pick things up and put it in your mouth using just like your pointer finger or something. But if you can turn your hands towards your mouth, sort of scoop it up. That would be nice. Makes things easier. Yeah. It's weird to think how turkeys and alligators have anything in common. Yeah, they're very different animals for sure. But when you look at them in a CT scan with their arm doing this very specific range of motion, yep. you can't really tell which one's which other than the fact that one's a wing and one's a hand. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. The next talk was pretty interesting. It was by Bamforth and they talked about how there are several dinosaur sites from Montana and southern Alberta and Saskatchewan, and they were trying to figure out which ones are the most similar. So they basically threw in a bunch of what they call beta diversity parameters, and then they looked for patterns in the beta diversity to see how similar sort of the, the different animals in these areas are. And interestingly, they found that the Saskatchewan sites are more similar to the Alberta sites than they are to each other. So like the Saskatchewan sites, even though they're close together, it, they're not actually that close in time, I guess. Or there was some other barrier so that the animals are more different from one another than you might expect just by looking at them on the map. And on top of that, they found that the American sites in what we call the Judith River Formation, they call it the Dinosaur Park Formation in Canada, are more similar to each other than they are to the Canadian sites. So the American ones are kind of their own little diversity versus the Canadian ones, even though some of them are very close. In this case, you can't just look at the proximity of the fossils, even if they're from a pretty close age. Yep. Sometimes it's more complicated than that. And I think we've talked about that with some of the Chinese fossils lately too. And like one is kind of similar to something that's like thousands of miles away mm -hmm. rather than something that was found really close by, sometimes even in the same bone bed. They're too similar, so they had to go far away to thrive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be. Yeah. And last up, it was kind of a follow-up on an interview we did with Sakamoto a few years ago, 
where we were talking about basically how well dinosaurs were doing at the end Cretaceous. And so Barrett did a presentation saying basically the dinosaurs were still doing pretty well at the end of the Cretaceous. Basically, the point, the main point of his presentation was if instead of asking, were the dinosaurs declining or improving? You ask, were the dinosaurs declining, downturning, or just doing about the same? <laughs> and you also tweak the math a little bit to assume that at time zero, there were zero dinosaurs rather than allowing this intercept on this math that they used to change, that you find that rather than showing dinosaurs declining, it looked more like they were just sort of leveling off. So they weren't really declining in diversity, they were just sort of staying about the same. And then of course, there were a couple clades like hadrosaurs and ceratopsians that we saw doing much better. So combining that, they say that dinosaurs were still doing well at the end of the Cretaceous, and if it wasn't for the big old impactor smashing into Mexico, they'd probably have survived for quite a long time. So that was the main news from day one of SVP, but SVP has also got a bunch of other stuff, you know, poster sessions, exhibitors, and then the welcome reception in the first night was at the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science. And we actually sat down with Matt Seleski, who used to work there, and we'll go into way more details in a later interview with him, but he put together this amazing exhibit called Picturing the Past, which was a bunch of paleo artists coming together and using different mediums to depict, you know, paleo art. And we'll talk more about that in our interview, but just it was a really great example of so many different ways to portray these animals. And we've got mediums such as sculptures and digital art and quilts, yeah, cut paper, and one a hand-woven tapestry <laughs> that took several months to make. It's amazing. Yeah, so the first day of SVP was very busy. We have three more days to cover, but we're going to combine the second and third day because the second day didn't have very much about dinosaurs. Yes, because SVP is not just dinosaurs. Yep. <laughs> As pretty much all the non-dinosaur paleontologists are constantly frustrated by. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> I, I, I'm sure it's the most popular field of all of paleontology. The human, there, there's a fair amount of like archaeology type stuff because people like to learn about ancient human ancestors. The mammals in general. Apparently that's one of the easier ones to get funding for. So mm -hmm. it makes sense that it's popular. But other than that, it's mostly dinosaurs. <laughs> So moving on into non-SVP news, because there has been a lot of news in addition to SVP, there's a large sauropod from the late Cretaceous that was found in the Gobi Desert, and it's one of the largest skeletons found from that time in that area so far. It's part of a joint research project by Japanese and Mongolian scientists, and it sounded like they found about 30 to 40 percent of the bones... Pretty good. Yeah. And the, so based on that, they think that the sauropod may have been up to 55 to 56 feet or 17 meters long. And the team also found footprints of an ornithopod. So I'm looking forward to when they publish more about their findings. In Argentina, in Patagonia, in Neoquin, hopefully I'm not butchering that too much. There's a 70 million year old eggs that were found in Acamajuevo. A sheep breeder found them. They're similar to eggs found in 1997 in another part of that province. And now the province plans to create a paleontological park in the area. So 70 million years ago, these eggs, they were in a swamp with water that caused sediment to cover it and drown the embryos inside the eggs. So they're going to be studying the embryos, including skin and teeth. Oh, what? That's so cool. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they'll actually find skin inside it. I hope so. It sounds like there's a lot in there. Yeah, I wonder if they've already done scans of it so they know what's in there, they just haven't published it yet, or if they're just hoping that's that how, they find skin. That's how it sounded in the article, was that they are anticipating studying the skin. Oh, that'd be cool. That's really hard to do, because I'm assuming this is all going to be CT scanned if it's embryos still inside eggs, and it's very hard to get that sort of resolution, but I hope they do. Yeah, me too. We've also got an update on the Tufts Love T-Rex skull. So the team at the Burke Museum, they found 100% of the skull and jaw bones by bone count. This includes the right epiterygoid, which is a thin bone that's usually not preserved. They also found the left 
columella, which is the smallest bone in a T-Rex. It's thin and rod-shaped, and it's only a few millimeters in diameter. Wow. Yeah. So visitors to the museum, they can see paleontologists work on the skull in the paleontology lab as part of the testing, testing, one, two, three, work in progress exhibit that's going on from now until December 30th. And then next year, the skull is going to be mounted for display in the new Burke Museum, which will be opening in the fall. Nice. Mm-hmm. We have some sad news next. So Jun Chang Lu, who was one of the most prominent paleontologists, recently passed away at the beginning of October at the age of 53. And he was a professor at the Chinese Academy of Geological Sciences in Beijing. He probably died of a heart attack. He's known for discovering many pterosaurs, and he was an expert on oviraptorosaurs. Along with Phil Curry, he described Yulong Mini and helped repatriate baby Louie back to China. He also discovered... Zhen Yuanlong, which is a close cousin of Velociraptor that had feathers and wings. And according to Scientific American, Steve Brusati said that Liu, quote, is one of the most important dinosaur researchers of the past half century, and he should be remembered as a scientific titan, end quote. And next, we've got a bit of an update on Chilesaurus Diego Suarezai, which is the first Jurassic dinosaur found in Chile. It's going to be on exhibit at the Regional Museum of Eisen in Chile next year. And just quick recap, that dinosaur was found in 2004, but wasn't published about until 2017. And we wrote about it in our top 10 dinosaurs of 2017 book, if you want to read more about that. In other museum news, there's another update on the Deep Time exhibit at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. So Allosaurus fragilis will be posed in a way that displays what we know about dinosaurs today and will be next to a Diplodocus. There's also going to be some nests to show that Allosaurus gave some parental care. Nests with fragments of Allosaurus eggshells have been found, along with theropod prints that suggest that they sat on the ground and watched their nests, probably to protect them. So Deep Time is about showing dinosaurs in a different light and to make people think about their life cycles. So there's going to be a lot of different ways that the dinosaurs will be displayed. Nice. And last, because it's Halloween, if you're looking for a last-minute Halloween costume, there are Jurassic World Indoraptor masks. (laughs) You could probably wear that with all black and then be all set, so very easy. They're apparently available at Walmart. I think we also saw them at some museum gift shops. Yeah, I hate wearing masks, though. I would never recommend it. (laughs) Well, just if you're in a pinch. They are probably the easiest costume, but also one of the most uncomfortable, generally. More uncomfortable than the inflatable ones? I think I'd rather wear the full inflatable T-Rex, personally. Because at least it's not, like, on your face, and you can Mm. still see, sort of. Although that one's not that easy to see out of, so maybe not. But (laughs) (laughs) I guess it depends on how good the mask is. They look not the highest of quality. No, they look very big. But all I'm saying is you don't have a costume yet and you decide, oh, (laughs) I need a costume for Halloween. That's true. Mask and all black. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) Because most dinosaurs have more going on than just all black. But since Indoraptor is black, you probably have a black outfit. Good point. Happy Halloween. The Morrison Formation is by far the most famous Jurassic site in the United States, and I would argue in the world. Especially for sauropods. It does have some fantastic sauropods. They are spread across multiple states, and the Morrison Formation covers a good portion of western Colorado, and that's where this week's sponsor, the Colorado Northwestern Community College, or CNCC, comes in. Possibly the most famous sauropod from the Morrison Formation is Brachiosaurus, and the Morrison Formation also includes two other very famous dinosaurs, Allosaurus and Stegosaurus, and CNCC actually has an active dig site right now with all three of those amazing dinosaurs in one site. Nice. And even better, you can join them digging up those bones this summer. They're offering 16-day field programs where you can dig up bones with expert local paleontologists from the college. There's two scheduled digs. The first one's July 6th to July 20th. The second one is July 22nd to August 5th. But they are filling up, so be sure that you sign up now. You can go to cncc.edu slash dinodig to get all the details. Make sure you register online by May 31st, but do it even sooner because, again, those spots are going to be full soon. Again, that's cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, world-class language learning for the world's best moms. It's almost Mother's Day after all. We're going to continue our story from last time about our trip 
to the Taipei Zoo in Taiwan. Yeah, we definitely recommend the Taipei Zoo in Taiwan. They have a really cool dinosaur museum featuring all the highlights like Deinonychus, T-Rex, Triceratops. So we had a really great time. And then we decided to take the train back and we had some more aha moments with our language learning journey. Yeah, we had to read some maps to navigate home. And of course, a lot of the things are translated into English, but not everything is translated. So it helps a lot if you know some of the local language. It's also very nice to be able to understand announcements when you're on public transportation. Yes, because things can change sometimes. And as a bonus, we were on the train at the time when everyone was coming home from work. So it got to practice even more by listening in on conversations. Not that I was trying, but we were elbow to elbow with people. So it was hard not to hear what they were saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there wasn't anything too juicy, mostly people talking about what they're going to have for dinner. But a lot of the early phrases I learned in Chinese had to do with food. So I felt pretty good about what I could understand. And Rosetta Stone can help you have your own proud moments. Yes, and the lessons are short, so you can fit them into your busy schedule. And for a limited time, you can get all of Rosetta Stone's 25 language courses for just $179, which is a huge discount off of the usual $399. And you can do that at rosettastone.com dino. Again, that's rosettastone.com dino. Now we're going to move on to our interview with Ollie. We're here at SVP with Ali Nabavizada, who is the assistant professor at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University in Philadelphia. Hi, Ali. Hi, how you doing? Good. <laughs> so it's an exciting day. Your paper just came out. Yeah, very surprisingly. <laughs> Thankfully, yeah, yeah. It, um, it was a good surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's an anatomical record. Yes. So. <laughs> Can you tell us about what the paper is about? <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so the paper itself, so my research is generally involves uh, the evolution and diversity of jaw mechanics and cranial musculature in large herbivorous dinosaurs, specifically Ornithischian dinosaurs. And um, what this paper was, is looking at is just kind of rehashing the anatomy of cranial musculature in Ornithischian dinosaurs as a whole. And relating that to previous hypotheses of both jaw mechanics as well as the possibility of there being, quote, cheek muscles in Ornithischian dinosaurs, which is a very contentious kind of subject in both our, you know, paleontology and the science and in the paleo art world. And, you know, there are blogs everywhere about it and everything. So, but I've always, ever since doing my dissertation, been interested in the actual mechanics of Ornithischians. And it was always an issue for me the way that jaw musculature has been reconstructed in Ornithischians till now, and that we see this tooth wear of, um, in, specifically in Ceratopsians and Hadrosaurs and Ankylosaurs with palinal feeding, which is basically bringing the jaw up and moving it uh, caudally or backward while you're feeding in occlusion on both sides at the same time. And so in re-looking at the anatomy, I kind of noticed that there was actually room for an external muscle to actually stretch forward and attach laterally or on the sorry on the outside of the jaw out on the outside of the tooth row in these dinosaurs and specifically ceratopsids and hadrosaurs and ankylosaurs most mostly in in ceratopsids and um this big muscle would have then kind of stretched forward and became this really big fan of muscle that would allow for this upward and backward motion it would kind of evenly distribute the muscle force across the tooth row to then be able to uh, very efficiently, quote, chew their food, as they might say. <laughs> cool. Not in the mammalian sense. but And also an interesting addition to that is in hadrosaurs and ankylosaurs, it would have also helped in kind of this um, inward rotation of the jaw on both sides of the jaw at the same time. So basically creating this bolt cutter mechanism as they pull the jaw backward. Um, and that relates to the predentary bone in the front, which is another one, one you know, <laughs> something I've uh, been fascinated with in the past and have, uh, have written about. But it kind of all relates to how that whole feeding mechanism um, comes together and is able to, and how these animals are able to pull the jaw backward. And what's kind of tangentially adds on to that is that it kind of adds to the. Uh, or it, it is informative of the hypothesis, the previous hypothesis of there being cheeks mm -hmm. in dinosaurs, because um, previously, uh, 
you know, researchers have kind of suggested that there was this big uh, muscle that kind of bridged between the upper and lower jaw kind of vertically as it does in a buccinator muscle in mammals, our mm. cheek muscles. You know, the problem with that is that uh, reptiles and dinosaurs didn't have muscles of facial expression. That's what our cheek muscles are. It's a totally different embryological structure than jaw muscles. Mm -hmm. And and yet we still see this kind of lateral or like uh, this ridge on the outside of the tooth row, which was the signal for others to say, well, there is a cheek muscle because there is a there is kind of a gap there and the teeth are kind of inset on, on the inside. So... Uh, these this forward stretching muscle would have attached onto that um, ridge on the outside rather than there being a novel, totally um, kind of new muscle that would have appeared out of nowhere <laughs> to be a quote cheek. Just so, to be similar to mammals yeah. with mm -hmm. no yeah, other yeah. purpose. So <laughs> it kind of informs that and at the same time adds on to the question of jaw mechanics in these animals. Awesome. That was really long. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that, that was, was great. great. <laughs> so while they're chewing, if they're kind of pulling their jaw up and back, is it sort of, I mean, you said chewing like kind of in air quotes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that because they just kind of like, it, it doesn't like stay in their mouth? Is it just kind of like they're, I don't know, they're biting it as it goes into their throat? Is well, that what they're doing? Or? So maybe partially, but a lot of it, there is, there, there, I mean, it's, I'm almost positive there's a lot of, action going on with the tongue and trying to like manipulate the food oh okay. that's what you know most herbivores do yeah. when they want to chew their food i mean this is much more so an herbivorous trait and right. you know this whole kind of grinding and crushing action you see in living mammals you see it also in the toothware of these mega herbivorous dinosaurs mm. but not in the same way they're they're eating differently they don't have this kind of like transverse side to side motion of the entire jaw right um so for instance in mammals you get uh eat, you know when you chew your food do you be, eat on both sides of the jaw at the same time or one mm. like you can kind of think about it you have primarily unless you're eating like a steak or something you're kind of chewing on one side gotcha right right so all the muscle forces are going from the opposite side through your chin onto that bite point so everything is kind of condensed to that one zone well, in these ornithischians, it's kind of this novel apparatus in which both sides of the jaw are kind of grinding at the same time, and those forces don't really transmit because there's that predenary in the middle blocking the forces. Hmm. Oh. So instead of chewing on one side, now they have this, this uh, simultaneous uh, bilateral feeding uh, mechanism, which is called isognathus, uh, as opposed to anisognathus, which is on one side of the jaw. So. Does that make them more efficient? Does it make it more efficient? Yeah. In some ways, yeah, because you get more food at one time. Sure. And these things are eating all the time. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they have to eat, they have to chop up as much plant material as they can. And with, especially with ceratopsids and hadrosaurs with those crazy dental batteries they have, they have these huge columns of teeth that are just made for crushing mm -hmm. large amounts of plant material of all sorts. And you see variation in that, so much variation even in that kind of aspect of it, but you need that uh, muscle architecture to be able to manipulate that in the different ways that it does. Gotcha. So do those, that's mostly ornithischians. Do they, do ornithischians have gizzards? Do we know if they have gastroliths and uh, things? So that's a good question. We, I mean, we don't know because of soft, you know, soft tissues. Um, there have been suggestions of I don't think ornithischians have had suggestions of gastroliths. I, don't I think could so, be wrong yeah. about that. But even the dinosaurs that have had have been proposed to have gastroliths, that's been questioned. So, so yeah, we don't really know. And, you know, as far as would they have needed it, I mean, their whole digestive system is probably a lot different from, I, I would say a lot different from what we know of theropods. So. Yeah. Right. So, and, you know, that's, that's what we know is birds. That's mm -hmm. all we know. Mm -hmm. And ornithischians were not birds. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> we can't really go with that. So yeah, they have this whole—they probably have this enormous, whole novel fermentation system that people have yet to really delve into and see. Well, we don't have soft tissue of that at all, but we can only infer from different external bony features, maybe. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, if you had such a good mouth for chewing, you probably wouldn't need to then grind it up again yeah. in your stomach. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, but still, I mean. These things, 
need a lot of food. So <laughs> I, I mean, mammal, large you know, elephants chew all the time, and they still have this big fermentation system. So yeah. do big mammals, bigger bivorous mammals. So it's kind of that initial trituration, uh, kind of like initial grinding of the food, but there needs to be a lot more processing that happens in the gut. Gotcha. To be able to, especially to digest things like conifers and things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That they would Cycads and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were angiosperms toward the end, and there's been back and forth speculation of, oh, did ceratopsids and hadrosaurs co-evolve with flowering plants? Mm-hmm. Current uh, studies don't show evidence of that yeah. necessarily, but, you know, who knows? We still don't. We can't find absolute proof of the mm-hmm. negative. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's an ongoing question, definitely. I'd like to think they co-evolve with plants or flowering plants. That'd be awesome. I personally, you know, absence of evidence for me doesn't mean evidence of absence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we don't have evidence, so we can't say for sure. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and then I know you don't like the L word, lips. <laughs> but. Well, okay. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally fine with, you know, these animals having extra oral tissues. It's just the fact that people call them lips. I have. <laughs> it's just misleading because it sounds like human yeah, lips. Yeah, it, it, it sounds not like, like mammalian lips. Yeah, so if they want to... I always use the word lip-like mm-hmm. in quotes, but I'm still iffy on using the word lips, but yeah. <laughs> so you think at least in some of these dinosaurs where they had muscles that are sort of attached across the yeah. side of the mouth. They needed some kind of extra oral skin to cover over it, mm-hmm. probably. Not necessarily, but it would have been a lot better, especially for these mega herbivorous, like huge things. You would have a lot of mucosa exposed yeah. right. um, to the outside world when you're eating. So it would be good to have this skin covering, but it's, you know, I can it's see hard what, to tell. Well, I could see why that's controversial then. Yeah. Especially definitely. with the art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, a lot of artists do a lot of uh, talking about extra oral tissues <laughs> and how, you know, skin and lips and. It's Cheeks. like that and feathers are the two yeah. like hot button issues right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, I don't know how much my study would actually inform it, but it's something, you know, it's an idea. The main way I see it is when you have like the muscles, if you have them going by a specific part of the mouth, yeah. then you'd figure, well, there's probably some skin over at least that part. Yeah. So exactly, it yeah, could give yeah. you kind of a, a minimum amount, maybe of lip-like tissue. <laughs> right, right. I would say toward the front end, but behind the beak, mm-hmm. there's probably a bit of a lip-like tissue because it has to bridge between it, mm. um, between the flap where the muscle would have extended to and the beak. But, but yeah, and it depends. Like, you know, early ornithischians, they wouldn't have had that ex- that forward extension of muscle. They would have kept it to the side. So they probably did have this lip-like structure to cover over it. Gotcha. No. Yeah, and I think you mentioned earlier that like saltwater crocs don't have lips. They just kind of have a s- exposed muscle. Oh yeah, with- a lot of a lot of crocs don't have <laughs> it. And there's been speculation of things like T-Rex. Did it have lips or not? And some say, oh, there's a lot of holes in the side of the face, and therefore it means there wasn't because things like crocs have tons of little foramina or holes mm-hmm. on the outside. And others say, well, you know, is that neurosensory tissue? Is that just to the teeth? Like, is it gingiva? For gingiva, in that case, why wouldn't there be lips? <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> it, for me, it's, it's really hard to tell either way. But current consensus and a study done by Moorhart, I think back in 2009, um, for her... I think it was when she did her master's, she uh, kind of did a study correlating number of foramina along the jaw with the existence or absence of oral soft tissue. And oh. She found that, you know, when there are a lot of foramina, like tons of foramina, it correlates with not having a soft tissue like crocs. Hmm. But when there are a lot fewer foramina, but more distinct, like in lizards, you do have that. And that's in T-Rex, too, the very distinct... Yeah, so the question in T-Rex is, and, and Tyrannosaurus in general uh, has been, well, what are those foramina? Are they <laughs> are, are they sensory to, sensory to the outside or are they for the teeth? And that's still a big hot-button thing that you know people are going back and forth on. But I have no skin in that game. I'm, <laughs> I'm staying away from T-Rex. <laughs> you just want to know They're how they They're not herbivores. I'm, yeah. I, yeah, I, <laughs> I let them <laughs> battle it out. <laughs> cool. 
So are there any animals like around today that chewed at all like how dinosaurs do? Like how dinosaurs do? Yeah. Nope. <laughs> no. <Simple> Interestingly, <laughs> it's true. They, there's nothing today that lives today that has that kind of palin, like strictly palinal kind of backward motion or that kind of rotation. Nothing has a predenary either. So mm. nothing that has that kind of a predenary. So they wouldn't have needed to do that. And there have been mammals that, ex- that are extinct mammals <laughs> that have had palinal feeding. Multituberculates, which are these little tiny um, early mammal ancestors, or they're <laughs> early mammals, but they don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And they had palinal feeding, and they also had insertion for a very forward extending muscle to be able to pull the jaw back. Hmm. So they give that mechanical advantage, that leverage to be able to pull the jaw back. And dicynodonts, which is also an animal group I'm working on, they're um, herbivores that were kind of pre mammalian synapsids. And they were a huge herbivore group that existed from before dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. They, they existed well into the Triassic, so they kind of, there were a few that coexisted with really early dinosaurs in the Triassic, but they were kind of almost trying with each other, but they had that very forward extension of muscle as well, and they were palinal feeders. Nice. So, yeah. Any, it seems to me that anything that was a palinal feeder and has that kind of muscle, so... It, to me, it kind of was like, oh, it would make sense that, you know, these big herbivores would have needed it too because they're <laughs> doing that kind of feeding mechanism. So, Gotcha. Yeah. So where's the best place that people can find out more about you and your work? Uh, <laughs> good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a Google website, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I can give you the link to that. Okay. And my uh, works website has some information about my work. But, yeah, I... Just basically search for Ornithischian Dinosaur Jaw Mechanics and you'll find my research. <laughs> yeah. Well, you also have a Twitter, right? Oh, I do have a Twitter. That's right. Sorry. Sorry. I was thinking of websites. <laughs> yes. Social media. I do talk about <laughs> I do talk about it. I have a blog as well, um, anatomistsguide.wordpress. Um, What's your Twitter handle? Uh, my Twitter handle is vertanatomist. So vert underscore anatomist. That's a good um, one. That is so, a good yeah, one. I talk a lot about dinosaur herbivory there. So if you're, if you're interested, check it out. Cool. Definitely. Well, thank you very much for stopping to talk to us. Uh, thank you so much. It's been a blast. <laughs> Thanks again, Ollie. That was a really good conversation. Very few people have done any work at all on the musculature of dinosaur heads and how they chewed. So it's really cool to see this making its way into the actual literature and off of just blogs and rampant speculation <laughs> that we're usually limited to. And it's also going to be really cool to see how this might update paleo art and other depictions of dinosaurs. It's also good to know that dinosaurs didn't chew like cows, (laughs) even though several of them are called the cows of the Cretaceous. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone. There are a lot of dinosaur hotspots in the world, and high on our list of places to visit is Brazil because there are so many cool dinosaur sites in that country. Yes, it's home to some of the earliest dinosaurs like Saturnalia, a small long-necked dinosaur that weighed just a little more than a house cat. And then there's Austroposeidon, the largest known dinosaur from Brazil. It's about 82 feet or 25 meters long. And the carnivorous Thanos. Yes, that Thanos named for the Marvel Comics supervillain. Plus, some really amazing sites like the one recently described where people from thousands of years ago made rock carvings to go alongside dinosaur tracks. Yeah, petroglyphs and footprints in one place. Mm-hmm. We'll definitely want to learn Portuguese before we visit Brazil. One thing we've learned from our travels is you have a lot more fun adventures when you know the local language. Yeah, and places like petroglyphs aren't always near big cities, so it's very useful to have some local language knowledge. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in handy. It's designed and refined by language learning experts, and the lessons are immersive There's also an audio companion, which is great when you're commuting, taking long walks, or even doing chores around the house. Perfect for when you're waiting for the next Dino Dino episode to drop. So, sauge, or cheers. Join now at rosettastone.com slash dino for a special limited time offer just for our listeners, and you'll get over 50% off for a lifetime membership. It's worth $399, but you can get it for just $179, and you'll get access to all 25 language courses. Again, that's rosettastone.com slash dino.
This episode is brought to you by Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them on a dig this summer and help advance our scientific understanding of the ancient world. This is a 16-day immersive paleontology experience in Northwest Colorado. The fossilized bones that are being excavated are public and they'll be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. And the bone bed is really cool. It's atypical for the Morrison Formation. And the current thinking is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus acting as a log jam and then other carcasses are piling up behind it. So you imagine a river flowing until a big old Brachiosaurus blocks the whole thing and a bunch of littler dinosaurs are piling up. Yeah. Oh, man. There have been two digs scheduled. It is May 27th to June 11th and July 1st to July 16th. Also, in conjunction with the dig, there are two immersive lab techniques programs available. College credit is available for both programs for those interested, and you can go to cncc.edu slash dinodig to get all the details and register online. Again, that's cncc.edu for Colorado Northwestern Community College slash D-I-N-O-D-I-G. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Yamaceratops, which was a request from Philip via Patreon, so thanks. It was a Neoceratopsian that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. And first, a skull was found in the 1991 American Museum of Natural History Mongolian Academy of Sciences expedition. Members of those expeditions then came back in 2002 and 2003 and found more Yamaceratops material. There's not enough fossils, unfortunately, to know the size of this dinosaur, but it was herbivorous. It had a relatively thick rostral that had a rugose or wrinkled texture, and it had a frill that may not have been used for display, but rather, quote, hints at a more complex evolutionary history for ceratopsian frills, end quote. The edge of the frill is, quote, heavily pitted by muscle insertions, indicating that the frill served as a platform for large jaw adductors, end quote. Sounds familiar. It does. Some of Ollie's representations show the muscles of ceratopsians making their way up the frill, which is just awesome to see. Yeah, so definitely a nice tie-in. Yamaceratops also had a distinct epijugal ossification, basically an armored cheek plate, and it's the most basal neoceratopsian with this. The frill and cheeks suggest that there's more variety in cetacosaurids and neoceratopsians than previously thought. Yamaceratops was described in 2006 by Makaviki and Norrell. The type species is Yamaceratops thorngobiensis, and the name means Yama horn face. The name refers to Yama, a Tibetan Buddhist deity who is the lord of death and one of the eight protectors of Buddhist teaching, and who has the head of a water buffalo and has horns, like ceratopsians. I wonder if Tibetan monks found a Yamaceratops skull all those years ago, oh. and that's where it comes from. You never know. <laughs> The species name refers to the eastern Gobi, Dornogobiensis. Yamaceratops was originally thought to be from the early Cretaceous, but then a later study found it to be from the late Cretaceous. Scientists found a fossilized egg and embryo in an area where Yamaceratops was commonly found, but a later study with more CT scans found that that egg was actually of a bird, not Yamaceratops. Hmm. And our fun fact of the day also comes from an SVP talk, because <laughs> where else would it come from? <laughs> and it's that courtesy of... Holroyd, and the fact is that the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction event, also known as the end Cretaceous mass extinction, was unremarkable as far as aquatic extinctions go. So basically, ecological factors are what drive terrestrial extinction, and during the Cretaceous Paleogene and otherwise, it's kind of similar things affect the extinction rates, but aquatic animals are less susceptible to mass extinctions because they are numerous, meaning there's a lot of them, and they have a very large range in general compared to land animals that are often kind of limited in where they can go and therefore where they can escape to or where they can try to live if there's something that goes wrong where they were before. And therefore, the aquatic animals are less likely to go extinct. And the take-home message that they were going for is basically that the KPG boundary isn't some big crazy thing that happened and that nothing else can be compared to because we don't know of any other massive meteorite impacts. It's 
especially aquatically, it's kind of similar to other extinction events. So if we kind of combine our knowledge from other extinction events, we might be able to learn more about the KPG boundary rather than just looking at it as this crazy thing that happened and we only know things that we found for that specific extinction event. So we might want to look for more corollaries to compare it with, especially when it comes to the aquatic side. I think one limitation of the study is that it didn't mention which characteristics the animals that went extinct had in common, because we often hear that the KPG disproportionately affected larger species, and I'm not sure if that's true for these other extinction events that happened, but we have heard that that applied both to terrestrial and aquatic animals, like even just like large phytoplankton, and obviously things like plesiosaurs and stuff went extinct at the end Cretaceous extinction as well. So it'd be interesting to sort of branch out in the way they're suggesting and sort of compare it to other extinction events, maybe find other ones where the large things went extinct. Maybe that's what usually happens. I don't know. But definitely branching out and comparing that extinction event to other ones is a good idea, rather than looking at it as like this remarkable thing that happened. Because as it turns out, maybe it wasn't that crazy as far as extinction events go. And that wraps up this episode of Ino Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And be sure to check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino for special rewards. Thanks again, and until next time. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader